We're using dumb money to hire some expendables, and the angel-headed hipster's being haunted by a Canterville ghost. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Okay, and welcome back to the show. We have got some brand new movies to talk about, of course. Um, In a moment, we're going to look at Dumb Money, which is the one I'm really keen on finding out more about today. But we're going to start with The Canterville Ghost. Uh, The thing that kind of turned my head on this one, I'm a bit of a Stephen Fry fan, so I was quite excited to hear that he was in this. Um, What did you think? Do you know I'm a big fan of this? Um, No, I mean, I was was a big fan of this conceptually. It was one I sat and watched. I... In, initially, I, I sat down, to, I was kind of like, yo, I was like, oh, Stephen Fry's in this. And it's also got Fry and Laurie. Like, Hugh Laurie's credited on this as well. So it's like, oh, yeah, Fry and Laurie in an animated movie based on the work of Oscar Wilde. What could possibly go wrong? And, ooh, a little, little bit of a mixed bag. So have you seen a version of an adaptation of the Canterville Ghost before? No, never. So it's based on, I think it's 1887 work by uh, Oscar Wilde. It's a story of uh, late 19th century story. American family uh, move to and purchase a stately home in Britain uh, where they're going to show off this newfangled uh, invention that they're trying to popularise called electricity. Only to find out that you know, the house they've gotten cheap, they've gotten cheap because it's haunted by a ghost who's voiced here by, because uh, it's all CG animation, by the way, uh, is voiced here by Stephen Fry, uh, a ghost who, you know, is the ghost of someone who murdered his wife and uh, he, he's driven away everyone that's had the house since. What they don't, what the, what the ghost doesn't count on in this case is that the kids of this family are in no way afraid of him. And the eldest daughter sort of becomes a, a sort of unwitting sidekick slash unlikely friend, along with her younger siblings as well. And they set out to find a way to break the curse of the Canterville Ghost, to free him from this supernatural imprisonment. Now, voice talents in here also include, say, so you've got Brian Laurie, uh, David Harewood is in there, I think. Uh, Miranda Hart has a voice on there. You've got oh, wow. Freddie, Highmore. Yeah, Freddie Highmore as well. This was intended, I think, for release in 2016 sat around on a shelf for like seven years um i don't think it's quite that bad or anything but like i, I presume it's mostly due to legal complications or something like that but that's the all-star cast you've got a supernatural setup to behold have a listen this is my house no sir this is my house Gotcha! (laughs) I'm a ghost who cannot haunt. Hello, ghost. Wait! I failed you. We can't just give up. Delightful of you to call on us, Reverend. (laughs) This is not funny. (laughs) You know what I'm going to say. I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. This is just Casper the Ghost. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, animated, but no, I think with its period setting, it, it, it's nicely enough removed from that. Although it's a very similar setup, I'll grant you. Right, yeah. It isn't quite, but the one thing is nowhere near as charming as the 1995 theatrical, you know, adaptation of, of Casper. I mean, that's an all-time. Yeah. I mean, that's just before you get to the, you know, Casper being the first movie to ever have a fully CG lead. You know what I mean? Um, God, I could watch that again and again. I love Casper. Yeah, oh, I want to now. Put that in my head. Now I want to watch Casper again. Cheers for that, Adam. Uh, so, um, directed by uh, Kim Burden and Robert Chandler, who I think have a background in animation as well. I know Kim Burden in particular comes from uh, Fireman Sam and things like that. Um, checking the cast list when we were playing the clip there, names that I forgot that were attached to this also include Mira Sayal, uh, Imelda Staunton, 
Toby Jones. This is not a low-profile project, although strangely from the animation and the standard of that animation, you could be forgiven for mistaking it for being so. You you could like, you could very easily lump this up to oh cheap and cheerful, you know, made in some you know basement office in Soho at best, if not a European import that we then just slapped a, an English language an English language cast over. Like it has that kind of a vibe. But it is slightly more at market than that. And where you do notice it in actually watching the film does actually tend to be in the writing of it, which is just a cut above what we're used to. For the scale of animation you've got, the writing is just slightly higher tier than that. And when you're hearing these words being you know, spoken aloud by Alex and Stephen Fry, then you, obviously it all clicks into place. Like, yeah, well, it just you've got elevated material that's then elevated further by a be, you know a, a better cast, and it just doesn't befit the visual of what you're you're seeing here, which does suffer from that what I call the iPad game syndrome. You know what I mean? Like, you've, you know, when when Albert sat there using his tablet, and you see the, the cutscenes and the animation of some of these games that he'll play. It, it looks like a lot of the sort of animated CG animated movies that we get now. This suffers from that, but does have writing slightly higher tier than that. Um, you don't get the sense that you're watching anything by Oscar Wilde. Like, you've got to give it that. It doesn't just doesn't feel anyway like you're watching an Oscar Wilde adaptation, because it's not quite that highbrow. But, uh, yeah, it's got some charm. It's got some decent set pieces. And, you know, it, it does quite well with its mood and its atmosphere and everything. I think for younger kids, this will go down a tree. I think past, like, six or seven years old, though, I think you're going to start with some wandering attention, I think, at that stage. But I think younger kids going to go for this. And it's not completely off-putting to parents, for instance. So you can watch this with Albert, for instance, and I think the pair of you will enjoy. You're kind of the perfect pairing for watching this. But I think beyond that, you're pushing it. I was going to say, being kind of aimed at a family for, for mm. a family kind of movie, has it got the kind of over-the-head jokes for kids, the ones that will make us grown-ups kind of chuckle a little bit, or is it very much so aimed at the younger generation? I think very much uh, aimed at the younger generation entirely. I, I, I don't think this really is. Hey, it's watchable. Like you, you, you can watch it and enjoy it. It's, like, it. it's one of those that a parent will tolerate, but I don't think a parent's coming away loving this. I mean, it also, it feels slightly overextended. It's only 89 minutes long. This just like falls a minute shy of an hour and a half. And it still just feels just a little bit pushed too far. Like You feel like you could have shaved another 15 minutes off of this one easy. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like something I would give a go with my little boy because, I mean, he's nearly five. Like you say, hits the bang on, you know, the, the soft, the sweet spot as far as age it's goes. perfect for it, yeah. And then maybe we'll follow it up with Casper afterwards and so compare the two. <laughs> wet, wet his appetite and then give him the main course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Um, all right. Well, if you want to make your own mind up about that one, uh, it is out in cinemas from today. Uh, still to come then, we're going to look at the Expend for Bulls. Uh, we're also going to look at. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why they've done that. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I love it know. when they do that. I lo- I'm sorry. <laughs> I finally got to see Equalizer three the other day. I finally got to see. I had a couple of hours in the afternoon. And I just popped into the Odeon Leicester Square and watched Equalizer three. Game anyway, I loved it. I absolutely bloody loved it. Obviously, we should have reviewed it like a month ago, but it's yeah. difficult times at the screen. Uh, but I still just regret. Why did they not call it the three Equalizer? Come on, people. <laughs> Well, they have listened to you. So uh, the Expend Fobbles uh, we'll talk about after Dumb Money, which is next. So stay right where you are. We'll be back in a minute. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome back to the show. Okay, let's move straight on with our next movie. It is the ultimate David versus Goliath tale. It is Dumb Money. So Van's already seen this, of course. Um, over to you, Van. I want to hear your thoughts. Do you, what do you know of the GameStop scandal uh, from during the pandemic? Um, I know that... Didn't that something to do with Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe? Or am I getting confused with movies? No, no, that was the one a few weeks ago with uh, that. That was one uh, MDB and Wolf of Wall Street. Ah, yes, okay. Yeah. In that case, nothing. So the GameStop scandal. This started. It was during. It was. It was during lockdowns because everyone's at home for the duration of the movie. Like everyone. It's weird actually. The masks and everything are factored into this because you forgot this was so recent. Centers around uh, Roaring Kitty, a YouTuber, a sort of schlubbing YouTuber, played for the screen here by Paul Dano, who leads his uh, his army of followers, which starts out quite small but grows as the story goes on, uh, in his his insightful analysis into the stock market, particularly uh, the shares uh, in GameStop. Now you know GameStop is sort of the American equivalent of Game. Yes, you know we we have the branches of game. They have GameStop in the US. Uh, I have some personal dealings with them over the years because they bought uh, one of my very favourite stores uh, called ThinkGeek. So when I was in the US, I would go to ThinkGeek. That used to be they would move them into the basement of GameStop stores. So I used to have to go to a video game store to get to the nerd store somehow. What a shame! I know, I know. I'm not really, a, I'm not really a video game guy anyway. So. Basically, they, what these people are doing, they buy stock in uh, in GameStop, basically banking on the idea that Wall Street is planning to short them. This then wounds up over massively overinflating the stock value of GameStop shares and making this unlikely bunch of everyday normal people into, well, millionaires, effectively. They wind up with millions in GameStop uh, shocks. Now, what we get uh, what we get for the screen is this drama played out from the perspective of multiple different characters, like seemingly disconnected characters. So you have a young couple in college, for instance, who are doing it to pay off the student loan. You have a, a financially struggling nurse who's trying to learn how to play the stock market who gets into this. You have uh, Roaring Kitty himself, say, played by Paul Dano. Uh, then you have uh, the investors, the, the, the bankers and the investors themselves played by people like Nick Offman and most notably Seth Rogen who's one of them as well and a pair of billionaires one of whom is Sebastian Stan with just this I don't know how he does it Sebastian Stan has this way of just looking increasingly creepy by simply dyeing his hair it's the weirdest uh, thing you've ever seen Uh, I've got a clip for you Uh, this is Seth Rogen preparing his testimony for when, during the course of this scandal, he would be made to appear before Congress to answer for just how any of this happened. And this is him being prepared for that deposition. Maybe leave that part out. Part about my dad? The executive part. Okay, okay. I went to a public high school. I studied hard and got into Northwestern. To say a good college. I can't say I went to Northwestern. To elite. Northwestern's too All right. Upon graduation, I did not have a job. Today, I'm married with four children. Gabe, where do you plan on doing your testimony? Here. In front of your wine collection? I mean, this is... I don't have that big a wine collection. Yeah, it's huge. So hang on a second, let me rewind this yeah. a little bit. Seth Rogen, was it Seth Rogen that had to go to Congress or is he playing the guy who had to go to Congress? 
No, Seth Rogen is just playing the guy. Right, basically. okay. It's worth, it's worth noting, just, just, just for trivia recently, Seth Rogen has testified before Congress uh, in, in the names of, uh, I think it was Alzheimer's research. Because uh, if, you if you've never seen it, absolutely look that up on YouTube. And uh, his address to Congress is genuinely beautiful. Oh, okay. A, a, a really insightful, really eloquent uh, uh, monologue he gave to uh, to Congress about his uh, about his mother-in-law. Uh, she was about his his mother-in-law suffered. I think it was from dementia or Alzheimer's, and he, he gave a speech. Probably. And great, worth worth YouTubing. Anyway, uh, so there's, as you can hear from the clip, there is a very specific tone to this, and it's very in line with the Big Short. It's very close to. The Big Short, uh, and you've got a very similar kind of story. Now, The Big Short asked you to basically invest in characters who, in reality, had bet against the American housing market. They had basically profited from the financial collapse, and nobody listened. They warned everyone no one would listen to them. Here, you have a kind of a similar setup, but without that moralizing, and when you lose that moral, no one looks at the big short and really thinks it was a particularly moral film, but if it turns out if you do remove that moralizing and some of the flair, you have a movie that's in no way anywhere near as successful creatively or even just on a pop, popcorn level. Uh, basically put those sequences in the big short in which you cut away to like Margot Robbie in a big bubble bath explaining the stock market to you and then you cut away to Anthony Bourdain chopping fish and explaining to you, well, this is how the stock market works. If I want to get rid of this fish, yeah. It turns out you kind of need that. And if you don't have that, what you've got is a movie that's a little bit too dry for its own good. Now, it's uh, written and directed by Craig, Gillespie, uh, Craig Gillespie, who gave us I, Tonya with uh, Margot Robbie, Sebastian Stan, funnily enough, uh, Paul Walter Hauser. Uh, also gave us, uh, I think it's Finest Hours with Chris Pine, um, gave us Cruella with Emma Stone. So not exactly a weak directorial hand. It's but when you look at the film that you get here versus his level of ability and talent, you disagree. Like, I'm sorry, I feel like you should be giving me the next big short. If you're, if this is the material you have to work with, I'm expecting the next big short. This really does feel stripped down to its core, a lot like a, a made-for-TV dramatization, but with just a little bit of streaming era flair and nothing more. Now the cast that are in there kind of reflect that as well, because they're a very high-caliber, high-caliber, high-concept cast. Like I say, Seth Rogen, Paul Dano, Pete Davidson, Nick Offerman, uh, Shailene Woodley. You know, big-name cast in there. And you come away from it thinking, I do feel like this was something that was just made for Netflix with, uh, yeah, would have been made for Netflix and just had a lower a, a lower caliber cast. Like, I'd have a cast of people you couldn't name. Having said that, the story itself is interesting. It's just not as engaging as it could have been. And I do, again, refer you to Big Short for how you take a similarly, uh, you know, mechanical story, a very, you know, theoretical story, a story that's all about numbers and stock markets, which is not an inherently interesting subject matter. But I do refer you to The Big Short as to how you make that interesting. This does not quite get the grade. The Big Short is like a four to four and a half star film. This feels like a three, two, and a three and a half star film with some four star moments that come really from a, a, a smattering of style, a really great soundtrack, and an engaging cast. I mean, Paul Dano on his Paul Dano is never not worth a movie. Like Paul Dano's really good at it because he's playing the basement dwelling dweeb that he's so good at. You know what I mean? He's the same kind of guy. Like you could see this guy going off and becoming his own version of the Riddler from the Batman. You know what I mean? 
Putting the celebrities that are in this movie aside then, mm. would you say that it, it and, and the complications of understanding how the stock market works, etc., would you say yeah. that it tells the story of what happened well? I, I mean, within its within its narrow parameters, yes. I would argue it does. I think they could do with stopping and getting everyone up to speed a bit more. Like I say, I think it's a little bit too dry. I'd say, I refer you to, you know, Big Short, Adam McKay's Big Short, but uh, I'd say it works, but it could be a lot better. Okay, well, if you want to watch it, you can, because it is out in cinemas from today. Just look for Dumb Money. Okay, next then, we are going to talk about the Expend for Bills. Um, obviously, <laughs> Expendables 4, but they've replaced uh, the A the with a, a, with a yeah. number 4. Yeah, at the end. Um, as, you as you do. So we'll see what Van thought of the fourth instalment of the Expendables in just a second. Stay where you are. Well, welcome back to uh, Off Screen. We've still got two more movies to talk about. We are going to look at Angel-Headed Hipster in a moment. But right now, let's hear it. The Expendables, uh, fourth movie in the uh, in the series. So I'm hoping, my fingers are crossed, that it has got better and better and not worse and worse. I mean, the bar has never been set especially high with the Expendable series, and it's to be fair, that's a complaint I have. I do, I do feel like if they'd gone full Avengers with this concept, it would run forever. This thing would run like the length of the Fast and Furious series. As it is, it's it's a quite short run series, and it's it's. I'm surprised that we've actually made it to four of them. They they seemingly do sell overseas, though. they sell in Asia, for instance, quite well, and things like that because. You know, it's quite easy to sell this cast effectively overseas. Like you'll you'll never struggle to sell a Jason Statham or Sylvester Stallone movie overseas. No. Um, right. So we're now on the fourth one of these. If you have, you have you seen many of them? Are you familiar with the concept here? Uh, I'm familiar with the concept. I saw the first one, obviously, and I saw the second one. I don't think I saw the third one. Actually, that's the one I've missed. So, uh, general general way this works is you've got a team of mercenaries called the Expendables. They're led by Barney Ross, played by Sylvester Stallone, who I think directed... The, he's written a few of them, but I think he directed the first one. And then they start handing them over with number two onwards. Uh, this latest one is directed by Scott Waugh, who recently directed Hidden Strike, which we reviewed with Jackie Chan and John Cena. Yeah. Um, and brother of Rick Roman Waugh, who directs any movie starring Gerard Butler. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just how they work. He'll direct a movie. It doesn't matter as long as it's got Butler in it. So he directed Kandahar recently, brother. Now, a team of mercenaries are generally made up of a who's who of action stars and you know faces from years gone by, and they it's a rotating team. So you're not necessarily guaranteed the same team turns up twice in a row. Uh, last time out the gate, I think was the one that introduced. I think it was Wesley Snipes was the new introduction to the team in the last one, and you had Mel Gibson as the villain. This oh, and Antonio Banderas was another one of the newbies this time around. This time around, you've got a new character who is the young son of Antonio Banderas's character, who's not even mentioned. You've got two female members of the team, played by Megan Fox and Levy Tran. Levy, be still my heart, Tran. And uh, I'm trying to think else is on the team now. Oh, 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 and 50 Cent. We can't forget 50 Cent because there's a. A weird continuity thing with him that sort of suggests that he is just actually playing 50 Cent. Now. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. 
Yeah, and the new boss of the team, the new CIA agent they're reporting to this time around is Andy Garcia, and the new villain for this one is Iko Uwe from the Raid movies, which makes me endlessly happy, as I'm sure you can imagine. This time around, the team goes on a disastrous mission to uh, attempt to try and th- try and prevent a series of nuclear triggers from finding their way into the hands of a ruthless terrorist named Ocelot, uh, whose right-hand man, the villain they seem to keep, keep encountering, is Iko Uwe. The mission goes disastrous wrong. The team is left a fractured shell of what it once was. Several members are no longer around and what's left of the team sets out to, you know, save the day, redeem the good name of the Expendables. However, Statham, not one to take his dismissal lying down, sets out on his own one-man revenge mission and it turns out the team may damn well need him to do so. So I've got a clip for you. This is from the early on in the film. This is, I think, just before. This is like first five minutes of the movie. This is Stallone and Statham starting a bar fight because Stallone has lost a bet and has had to forfeit his lucky iconic ring. See, what we have here is a matter of humiliation and human kindness. My friend here loves his ring for all of his stupid reasons. And it would be very nice and civilized if you gents would understand that principle. Since you choose to be, uh... Barney, what's the word? Obstinate. Too long. Dumbbells. Dumbbells. You leave me no other choice, Dinky. What we have here, of course, I think, is a movie that actually sounds quite funny. Was that a good well, impression? you know, it, it is. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's more Tom Hardy, I think, than Jason <laughs> Statham. It sounds good. I'll, I'll give it as well. It, Statham in this does get to pull off one of my very favourite of Stathamisms, which is Jason Statham, against all odds, has this habit where he is the manliest man to ever pull off a cardigan in an action movie. And he does it again here. He did it in Blitz years ago. He's done it again here. I don't know how he does it. No man looks this good in a cardigan. But I give you Jason Statham, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, it is what it is, this the, the series. And I will go out on a limb and argue that these movies do actually get incrementally better with each passing one. I think the second is still the most fun. The second one that had Van Damme as the villain, which yeah. they, they were going off on a mission to avenge, uh, I think it was Liam Hemsworth. That's still my favourite one of the series. The set, the third one, you know, you had the fun of Mel Gibson's villain. Here, it's, 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 it's a good time having Eco Uwe as the threat. And Eco Uwe versus Jason Statham. That is a fight scene I needed in a movie. Like it's, uh, you got Tony Jaa, I think, enters the mix as well this time around. It's a shame that Jet Li didn't stick around with this franchise. I know he appeared in three and he'd sort of gone off to work with Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in three. So the pair of them sort of cameo together. Would have been nice to see Jet Li getting on this action because Eco Uwe versus Jet Li versus Tony Jaa. Now that is a fight, sir. You have my money. They've got my money anyway. This is a good time. I'm going to say, uh, directed by Scott War. I, I, I know he brings a certain level of action pedigree to this. And far and away, the best directed we've had of any of these movies so far. But it's always going to really... Uh, it's always going to be weird to me that these movies are as badly directed as they are because the action is usually quite incoherent. And that does seem to remain here as well. Um, Plot-wise, well, what plot? 
basically. I mean, you could you could you could literally bash out the concept of this movie on the back of a napkin, on the back of a crisp packet. It's not exactly this is not one that's you know really steeped in Zen philosophy or anything like that. This is not a rich, nuanced narrative. Right? Like it is what it is, and if you can't spot its obvious twists coming a mile away. Frankly, I'd be shocked if you'd watched a movie before, let alone three of these buggers in advance. You know what I mean? It's, it's very phoned in. Like, you're like, oh. I mean, there's one bit like, surprise, it's... You're like, not a surprise. Surprise to anyone who's not seen a movie or any of these. Like, what? Yeah, that's a bit of a shame. That is a big shame. I'm interested to know what 50 Cent is like in this. Right, right, I'll tell you this. There is there is a sequence in this in which so fifty cent shows up playing fifty cent, right? Just there's no there's no character there. He's just he's fiddy. That's all he is, he's fiddy. He just shows up, sup, fiddy. I think they give him a, he has a character name. I'm gonna actually look this up a second. He has a character. Oh, it was Easy Day. His name is Easy Day. Who cares? It doesn't matter. They use his name once where he's introduced, and then for the rest of the movie, he's fiddy. Up to and including a sequence in which he drops down into a tank whilst playing PIMP. <laughs> to which you just, you just like, right. So clearly you are the version of Fiddy that survived the video game Fiddy Sent Blood and Sand, which I'm cool with. Just stop pretending you're a character. Just be Fiddy. It's fine. Uh, like I say, I had fun with it, though. I'm not going to laugh. It's got the violence. It's got the kills. It's got the blood, the gore, the explosions, the slow-mo jumps off of things whilst things explode behind you. It's got all of those. It's got its needle drops. It's got that neon-drenched warehouse through plumes of cigar smoke while everyone slams shots of Jack. Aesthetic that we all love so much. You know, tattoo ink as far as the eye can see. You know, guns being loaded up, knives being shot. It's got that in space. And frankly, to be honest, it's the fourth one of these. And if that's not why you're here, I frankly don't know why you are. So it does the job. It does the job well. It does the job as well as any of these movies really have. It's another Expendables movie. I, I, I give it two thumbs up on the Expendables scale. If you give comparing it to something like, you know, an Avengers movie, then obviously it's a one thumb. But yeah, it's it's what it needs to be. You know, it's destined for beer and pizza nights. It's a Saturday night, you know, get the uh, get the Domino's order in, crack open the lagers, you know, fire it up on the telly, watch it with your boys. It's one of those. How long is this one? Are we talking like a, a long, long, long movie, or is it a decent? No, not especially. It's 103. This one because I did think it was longer. I thought it was longer than it actually was, and uh, it's only it's an hour 43. So it's just solid enough. You know, it's a boys night out movie. Yeah, and that's not too long to sit in the yeah. cinema, you know, by the time you finish. And, and you get Jason Statham and Megan Fox doing some of that sexy Mr. and Mrs. Smith action. You know, which... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hash, hashtag couple goals, am I right? You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a fun movie, you know, definitely. What would you say, like, like two and a half, three star? Oh, like, I, I'll go with, like, three and a half, because I, I, I enjoy this stuff. I just, I, you know, I know it's not Shakespeare. You know, it's, it's a three and a half uh, star movie. There's some four star bits in it. There's a couple of callbacks, like action movies, like Stallone will make a reference to Demolition Man here and there or something like that. It's a good time. And you know what? It's a mainstream movie that has a mainstream role for Levy Tramp. And that, for me, worth the ticket price on its own. 
Well, there you go. If you want to watch it, the Expendables Four is out in cinemas. Expend four balls. Expend, Expend four balls. You wash your mouth out. <laughs> the Expend four balls um, is out in cinemas from today. Um, right, we got one more to talk about. If you're a fan of T Rex, you love a bit of rock and roll, you love a bit of music. Angel Headed Hipster. We're going to talk about it next. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to Off Screen for One Last Ride. Okay, let's look at Angel Headed Hipster, the songs of Mark Bolan and T-Rex. Now, I mean, you know this is going to be up my street, being a musician. Oh, yeah. um, I love music of all kinds. I do like T-Rex. My, my dad's band covers quite a lot of T-Rex music as well. So I am absolutely up for watching this. I did not know your dad was in a band. How cool's your dad? I know, right? And he's 73, 74 this year. So, um, yeah, Badass, still plays. Look at me. <laughs> yeah, still does well, it. Well, this will be right up his alley. I think this will be up yours, definitely, as well. And I had a good time watching this myself, I have to say. Did not expect to, because obviously last week uh, we talked about Bowl and Shoes. Uh, which was that the, the Timothy Spall drama that was designed to tie into what would have been the 75th birthday of uh, of Mark Boland. This has been released for the same commemoration. Uh, this takes the form of a documentary, however, that also ties in with the recording of an album called Angel Headed Hipster, the songs of Mark Boland and T-Rex. And what they've done for this is they've gone and gotten a, you know, a who's who of rock royalty to come in, talk about you know, their impressions, their history, their impressions of their history with Mark Bolan, to cover one of his songs each as well. And in the process of getting into the studio and performing their cover of his song, talking about the story behind that song, what that song means, how it came to be, etc. And we get all this played out with a variety of talking head interviews, sequences of them in the studio recording, and archival footage, you know, from back in the day, a wealth of which you'll have never seen before because they've unearthed a treasure trove for this oh, thing. So yes. I'll give you a I'll give you a clip. This is mostly trailer type material, but this gives you so this will give you a, a, a serious dose of sort of the energy of Angel Headed Hipster. It's like a worship for me to write. It's like I'm being used by melody. There's no strain, just gushes out. He was the pioneer of the glam rock movement. He deserved universal acclaim. He was the biggest selling poet in Britain. And he loved that. It's been a change in England, and we are part of the change. He comes out wearing his glitter and jackets with glitter on his cheeks, and we just got colour TV. <laughs> is still a political act. It was playing with gender, it was playing with power. You're not really bisexual, I gather. David Byrne and I were going to get married at one time. Oh, do you know what? That has just fed my appetite yeah. even more. Did you, have you ever seen Supersonic, uh, the Oasis documentary? It sounds very similar to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very similar. <laughs> I think similar. I think there's even more regency put upon this. There's uh, there, there is even more of a look. We are we are talking about an icon, mm. you know. And they really go down that road. So um, it's worth noting <clears throat> there is a massive amount of David Bowie in this as well. Like they they, they talked to Bowie quite extensively prior to his death. So you know, it, it, at one point about uh, his relationship with Boland. It's a fascinating story and Bowie and Boland, I did not realize had the history that they do that, uh, that there is 
actually quite a backstory there. There's there's a, a serious there's a, a rise and a fall of this friendship going on behind the scenes. It's really riveting stuff. And Bowie is quite eloquent and quite you know it gives you quite an eloquent and also quite brutally honest take on his relationship with him. Now I'm going to read off some names for you, right? Prepare to have your jaw on the floor because this is just some of the people who appear in this documentary. And I don't mean little cameo. I mean, stick around. Right. David Bowie, Nick Cave, Joan Jett, Elton John, Ringo Starr, U2, Joe Elliott. Wow. Just some Beth Orton. You know, they keep popping into your head as you go by. It is a massive, just, just, just staggering amount of talent in here. And hearing them uh, perform the covers and things like that really does actually give you a new appreciation for the, the music itself. We talked when we were talking about Bowl and Shoes last week, and you asked me about what they included the music. Yeah, they include the three anybody can name. I think we said offhand. And there's actually far more than I, I really give them credit for. And they really delve into the poetry of Bowen's work. Um, about his his writing process and the way that he constructed lyrics and things like that. And when you see these artists start to unpack those lyrics as they put their own stamp on them, as they do their own covers, their own very specifically individual versions of those, you gain this whole other appreciation for these just classic and iconic songs. I mean, I never would have thought that Kesha doing a T-Rex cover would move me as much as it actually does. Bloody Kesha. Kesha. Who, who's moved by Kesha? But mm. yeah, this is this is the documentary that does that. It's absolutely brilliant. I this absolutely fascinating. I had a great time with this. So I just, you know, sat down on the couch, just stuck this on the oh, music doc, I'll be able to breeze through this, I'll just rock out to a couple of tunes. It'd be fine. It's an hour and a half. It'd be fine. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. I will watch this again in a heartbeat. Incidentally, um, 99 minutes long. You do feel for how for how breezily it goes by because of its musical tempo, you do feel like you could actually have gotten away with actually extending that a little bit as well. Like there's no there's no dead weight on this, there's no flabby bits, like it's it's quite a lean movie that just kind of breezes along, just romps along. But really good, great time to be had. You are gonna love this. I guarantee you will love this. I mean, whole facets of Boland's life that I never I never knew about his foray into television. Actually, did you did you know about this? Because I didn't know that side of it. No, no, the, no idea. The the basic way the story goes is that he and Bowie came up around the same time. Bowie caught on in America, whereas he didn't, and he was kind of resentful about that. Caused a bit of a rift between them, and he wound up going into television, hosting a sort of musical variety show, effectively. And then because of his love of just the, you know the musicals, his, his genuine curiosity and things like that, uh, would wind up going and becoming through this show as well, the godfather of punk. That he gave a lot of punk bands. There's another name I forgot that was in this extensively. Billy Idol. Because we see Billy Idol's very first performance with Generation X on wow. telly. And we, I'm, I, I didn't realise that like, Billy Idol did not age well, it, it turns out. I did not realise that. Um, but we get to see his very first performance on stage like being introduced by Mark Boland. I imagine that being your like first, like your breakout gig. Bloody Mark Boland's the one who showed you. Wow, but yeah, fascinating. Like I say, unmissable. Absolutely see this. Even if you're not particularly a T Rex fan, in terms of just the culture of the music scene in that moment, in that decade, it's worth it just for that. Just to give you that insight into 
the early to mid 70s and the evolution of British rock and punk music through those years. This is invaluable stuff. You've got to see this. This is great. I was going to say, it's it's got to have lots of archive from the 70s to make this oh, work, yeah. because obviously he, he mm. died 46 years ago, so yeah. it's a it's a real take you back to the 70s moment then, by the sounds of it, with, with everything going on at the time. There's a moment in this in which you see the end credits of one of his uh, TV broadcasts, and, it's, and as these credits are playing across the bottom of the screen, you've got him and Bowie just on stage, just singing along together. And, and it's like, you know, oh, wow. you're watching the show hosted by Dave Bowie and Mark Boland, special guests, Billy Idol, the faces. All this. Just that's a thing that happened on telly once upon a time. But were they we as famous then? Of course, they, yeah, they were the icons. Yeah, the, the, then right. they, were, they were already the icons then. They were now you're like, like, we used to be a society. But <laughs> wow. we used to be a culture, you know, it just wouldn't happen now. You ain't getting that in the X Factor, you know what I mean? They don't make Oof. them like they used to. That they is do not sure. indeed. And by the sounds yeah. of it, this completely um, shows that and shows it off to its oh. uh, full capabilities. But, you know, it sounds brilliant. And I just think, like you say, this is one of those, if you're a bit of a music lover, whether you're a T-Rex fan or not, if you're a music mm. lover and you want to just reminisce about the 70s, yeah, even there, even there, though, as you say, I didn't know that they didn't start out as T-Rex. They actually started out as Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> and then only when they made the move to a slightly heavier tone did he change the name. And also, like, look, the, the insights you get into Boland's process, his love of poetry and things like that, and uh, the way that impacts the next generation of rock. is like there is a sequence in which you see Joe, Ed, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard like, take you through his very nice Sheffield home, it must be said. I don't believe for one second that a home that nice exists in Sheffield. I'm from Sheffield. No home that nice exists in Sheffield. <laughs> uh, you, you go through Joe Elliott's home and he takes you to the books of poetry that he literally you know, got based on having discovered that Mark Boland was using this as inspiration. And that he literally typed it out into an exercise book, took it from the local library and like copied it out by hand into an exercise book. And we literally go through this handwritten book by Joe Elliott as we're hearing a mock version of Boland's voice do the narration. Great stuff, like really great stuff. Like honestly, this is unmissable. You don't even have to get the pictures because this is actually available on demand uh, this weekend as well. So you can you can watch this at home. Wow. So yeah, I heartedly recommend this. Like essential viewing, honestly. I'm gonna most definitely give this a shout to my dad as well to watch this weekend. Oh yeah, I know he'll enjoy this. I mean, he was born <laughs> in the '60s, so this is absolutely his. Oh, it'd be catnip for him then, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, well, there you go. Angel-headed hipster, the songs of Mark Bolan and T-Rex available on demand this, well, from today, from this weekend. Um, all right, so what have we got coming up next week? Um, well, uh, there's one in particular that I'm very keen to hear about, and that is Saw 10. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So, yeah. the next week, first up, we've got uh, Where the Wind Blows, which is a new Korean drama I've got, I've got to watch yet. I'm looking forward to catching the link for that this weekend. Uh, Mike Lee has a new movie, The Old Oak. Is it Mike? I think it's Mike Lee. Uh, the Old Oak. Is it Mike Lee or Ken Loach? I always get my Mike Lees and my Ken Loaches mixed up. <laughs> you said that before. <laughs> yeah, I always get them mixed up. Because they're both British and both depressing. That's why, okay? I'm sorry. I, it's so stupid. <laughs> All right? It's, I, I can't be helped. Uh, of course, as you say, Saw 10, Saw X is upon us next week. I cannot wait for this. So, yeah. Oh, God. You, do you know? I, I is he going to go next? Well, actually, I can tell you where he's going next. He's going to bloody Mexico. That's where he's going next. 
Wow. Because this new one, this new one is set, I think, literally minutes after the end of the first movie, and sees him oh. going to goes to I think he's going to Mexico for cancer treatment or something. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because isn't the first movie mm. end with him in the bed? I think. Um, the first movie is where he, he he was the guy on the floor in the first one. He was the oh, that's right the in the men's toilets. Yeah, yeah, he was in the, in that derelict bathroom when the guy had sawn it, sawn his leg off, and the other guy was like, yeah, he. He was the corpse that got up and peeled the gore off his own yes, face. Yes, that was I him. Remember. Yeah, but oh, see, that's got me really excited about it. Can't wait. All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. You carry but on. That is not the biggest thing out next week because, and I have I have reason to believe, based on things that uh, colleagues from the US have told me, that the film we will all be talking about next week is the movie I'm going to the premiere of on Tuesday evening. Thanks to your good self, uh, I will be uh, journeying down to the Science Museum on Tuesday evening for the premiere of Gareth Edwards' new science fiction epic, mm. The Creator, starring uh, John David Washington. This thing looks amazing. This looks like Denis Villeneuve scale, Dune style, next level science fiction. And it's got a budget of 80 million. He's somehow done this on this very tiny $80 million budget. I'm fascinated by it. I'm a big fan of Gareth Edwards. I think Rogue One is like top three Star Wars movies. So sign me up. I interviewed the guy for Godzilla, I think about 10 years ago. We did that Godzilla remake 10 years ago. I interviewed him for that. Uh, great dude. I am so looking forward to this. So that's the creator, and that is out next week, finally. Yeah, it does look good. If I wasn't working, I would be coming with you to that. Premiere. Oh, you bet you would. <laughs> so there we go. Some loads of really good movies to look forward to when we are back next week. That is, of course, all we have time for this week. So I will see you then. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor and we shall return. <laughs>